माई मिलिट्री चाचा I remember it distinctly so don't try to change my mind I saw him that day the same as I see you today and you can believe it or not as you choose makes no difference to me As you know my family are sheep herders our lives were difficult I see that now as an adult but as a child I was just joyful War-torn surroundings, nothing much in the way of food, possessions, comforts. But our parents loved me and my elder brother. And I loved my home, my family, our sheep and dogs, and the beautiful wild countryside. And I always will. I'd just had my fifth birthday, and my father had made me a wooden doll and my mother had dressed her in a pink shalwar kurta and a gold and red dupatta i don't know where my mother got that fabric but it was the most beautiful thing in the world it had shining gold tinsel on its edges and i had never possessed anything so pretty from the moment i received that most fabulous of gifts I could not be parted from it. I named her Shireen and she went everywhere with me to the village, to bed, to play outside. She lay in my lap at meal times and she waited impatiently outside the bathroom when I went for my bath. Shireen and I were playing in the fields around our home that day. I was allowed alone outdoors as long as I stayed within sight of my mother's kitchen window. It was evening but not yet dark. I knew my mother would be calling me soon, so I was trying to make Shireen giddy by running round and around in circles. We were giggling and intent in our play. Of course I know she's a wooden doll. You need to remember I was only 5 years old. I can still recall the blast and its echo of the surrounding mountains. I wasn't scared. The cracks of gunfire, the blasts of bombs, the high-pitched whine as they flew through the air, the smell of fear, nervous sweat that came with them, all these were as mother's milk to me. I'd known them from the day I was born. I probably knew them even in my mother's womb. I had no fear of them. All this was and quite simply still is the accepted reality of our lives. Anyway, as I was saying, I heard the blast and I remember hanging on to Shireen tight as we were tumbled by the shock wave. The countryside around us was marked with pits and ditches by flying bombs. There were abandoned trenches and collapsed tunnels too a little further away. all were grown over with grass and not easily discernible on the surface despite the regular munching work done by our diligent sheep we found ourselves in one such abandoned trench i can't remember how we got there i can remember the blast the shock wave and next thing waking up in the trench 
I could hear gunfire and the flying shells dimly through my strangely wooden ears and head, like a distant echo. It was dark, and I could see flashes of light above the trench, but nothing else. I wondered which trench I could be in, since there were none like it near our home in the area where I'd been playing. How did I get there? I had no idea, then or now. My body felt stiff and cramped. I checked out my dear Shireen and having discovered that we were both fine, decided I'd better get home immediately. I wasn't allowed out of the house after dark and certainly not when fighting was going on, so I knew I'd get a good telling off from my mother. The sooner I got home the better, I thought, in my innocent five-year-old way, little realizing I was probably safer where I was. I got myself up and started clambering upwards. The trench was at least twice my height and there was no grass or anything to hold on to, which was unusual in itself. I dug handholds and footholds for myself, but they crumbled when I tried to climb over them and I'd be puddled on the ground, which Shireen carefully bundled inside the pocket of my kurta. How would I explain to my mother that it wasn't my fault? She could get very angry and upset if my brother or I disobeyed her, and the after-dark rule was extremely strict. After much scrabbling and falling back in the dirt and scrabbling again, I managed to get my head and shoulders above the level of the trench. I was looking around in the dark to see if I could figure out my whereabouts when I heard something go zing past my ear. And I lost my grip in terror and almost fell. But two strong hands caught me firmly from behind and pulled me down into the safety of the trench. I twisted around to see who it was and felt a burst of comfort to see it was a military chacha. That's what we kids call the army men in our village. I'd seen them often in the village, distributing toffees and pens to the other kids. Once, one of them saw me holding back and called me, but I was too shy. So he came to me slowly and gently and offered me two toffees. I thanked him quickly and ran away with them. I showed them to my mother and she said they were okay to eat. I remember I shared one with my brother. Where had the military chacha come from? I was sure Shireen and I had been alone in the trench. The chacha made me sit on a stool. Then he sat on one himself. I hadn't seen any stools in the trench either. He took out a toffee from his pocket and gave it to me. I accepted it and thanked him. I told him I had an elder brother too. He had a hearty laugh at that, which I can still remember perfectly. Gave his moustaches a twirl and produced another toffee miraculously from them. And then one more for Shireen. Perhaps he'd seen her earlier when I didn't know he was in the trench because she was still safely hidden in my pocket. I thanked him again and tied up all the toffees into the corner of my dupatta, saving them for later. Then he produced two mugs of hot tea and offered one to me. I was really puzzled. 
How come I never saw all of this when I woke up in the trench? I tried to peep around him, but I couldn't see anything. We sipped the tea and it was hot and sweet and milky just as I liked it. I suddenly realized I was cold and even though the hot tea was going into me, I started shivering. The military chacha made me gulp down the tea and some biscuits that he produced from thin air like a magician and then bundled me into a warm blanket. Don't ask me where all that came from. I don't know. He just put his hand into the dark trench and pulled out all these mugs of tea and blankets and biscuits and whatnot. He tucked a pillow under my head and made me lie down in the bottom of the trench, all bundled cozily in the blanket. I looked up into the night sky and thought how odd it was that I could hear every word he said loud and clear. But the bombs and guns sounded as if I was hearing them through a wooden head. I might have asked him about it, but he shushed me and told me to rest and he would look after everything. I could see his twirly moustaches and his dark eyes and his white teeth shining in the cold trench. His hair was cut short like all the military chachas, but he was going bald, just like the school teacher in the village. The hair was climbing up from his forehead and I knew that in a few years, he would have no hair left. That's what happened to the school teacher. In spite of all the booming and whizzing, I must have knocked off to sleep. Because when I awoke, it was not yet morning and I could hear my mother and father's voices calling my name. The guns and bombs had gone silent while I slept, but the acrid smell of cordite hung densely in the air. Rosy shadows were climbing up from the horizon. I pulled myself out of my cozy cocoon and shouted, I'm here, I'm here, waving my hands and struggling to stand up in the trench. But I was surprised to find I wasn't in the trench at all. I was lying in an open field. My parents came running towards me from different directions. It seemed that for hours now they'd been calling my name and looking for me in the dark. I hadn't heard a thing. I was still wooden-headed. My father hugged me tight and my mother cried copiously over me and nobody scolded me and I was grateful for that. My mother asked me where I'd got the blanket from and I told her the military chacha gave it to me. And then... Of course, the whole inquisition started. Which military chacha? The one in the trench. Which trench? The one I'd been sleeping in. He pulled me down when the gunshots were ringing and gave me tea and biscuits. What nonsense! There were no trenches in this part of the valley and no military chachas either. Tea and biscuits indeed. Next, I was going to say there was a stove and a small cupboard of provisions. But I never said any of those things. That's all other people's embroidery. I've never known where he got them from. It was dark in the trench. I couldn't see. Then where had I got the blanket from? I quizzed my mother in return. She seemed to have no answer to that. I checked my dupatta and sure enough, the toffees were there. And Shireen was in my pocket but I decided it was better to keep quiet about all that for the moment. 
all this and much more while being carried hurriedly home. My brother was glad to see me, especially when I produced the toffees for him, which started another round of questioning. But from that day to this, my story has never changed. I've never added any details or removed any. The facts are what they are through relentless rounds of questioning. I was tossed by the sound wave into a trench that apparently didn't exist. Saved by a military chacha who everybody insists also didn't exist despite the fact that he kept me safe during a raging gun battle. Plied me with tea and biscuits out of nowhere. Bundled me in a blanket and calmed me with toffees that I brought home as evidence of his existence. Yet, no one believes he was there. Or that he made a trench appear where none should have been. Well, you can say he doesn't exist till you're blue in the face. I know he was there. I saw him. He was kind and sweet and he kept me safe from the dangerous happenings of that night. So, that's why I joined the army, to honor my military chacha who protected me that dark and perilous night when gunshots whizzed over my innocent five-year-old head. I know everyone thinks I'm nuts on the subject, but I know I'm not. He was there, and he may still be there, still on patrol, still looking out for innocence to protect and if he isn't, and has finally gone to a well-earned rest, I can pick up where he dropped off and keep the flag flying. And you can call me crazy if you want, but to me, it's a great honor that the kids in the village call me Military Chachi. Unexplainable. I was filled up to the brim with sadness. It tingled in my body and my hands were actually trembling. My breath came in short gasps as I looked around and everything was so familiar. How could that be? I'd never been here before. I stumbled in confusion and my husband gave me a cautionary look, but it turned quickly to concern. What's the matter, love? Why are you so pale? He escorted me to a sofa. Someone ran up with a glass of water and there was a minor hullabaloo. I was so embarrassed to be causing a fuss that I made a huge effort and pulled myself together. But I felt almost sick with agitation. The check-in formalities were completed where we sat so as not to inconvenience me, I suppose, 
and we were escorted upstairs to our room. As soon as we left the lobby, the strange feeling passed and I felt completely normal again. I didn't know what it had been downstairs but I was glad it was gone, whatever it was. I waved away my husband's concerns. After a rest and freshening up, Gopal, my husband, suggested we go down again and the agitation started rising instantly. I tried my best to hold it in but in the lobby, the sadness rose like a tide. At the front desk, Gopal asked if they had a reading room or library and of their own volition, my eyes flew to the wall on the left side of the lobby. There was nothing there except a blank wall. But there should have been a long glass panel running right across. I don't know how I knew that, but I was certain of it. The young man at the desk asked me cautiously, Have you been here before, ma'am? Gopal assured him we hadn't. We used to have a reading room up there on a mezzanine floor, but it was closed up and we shifted the reading room elsewhere. I'll take you there, he offered, coming out from behind the counter. That seems like a good place for a reading room, Gopal said, especially if you could look down into the lobby through some large glass windows. What have you put there instead? I promptly stumbled again and Gopal steadied me as the young man babbled something about offices and Gopal announced petulantly that he didn't think that was a good use of prime space. In the reading room, we chatted with another couple and made a kind of resort friendship. Gopal changed one of the TVs in the room to a sports channel, on mute of course, and after that, the two men left us women alone to discuss our families and where we lived and other inanities. It was comfortable. But the pleasant interlude was hung over by a cloud. I was fearing having to go through the lobby on the way back upstairs. I couldn't explain the dark feeling I experienced and didn't want to mention it to anyone, even to Gopal yet. For all that fear and tension, I slept like a log that night and awoke feeling fresh. I prodded Gopal, shall we go for a swim before breakfast, I asked him. Always so enthusiastic, Anjali, he grumbled sleepily. But from his tone, I knew we were going. I got into my swimsuit happily, carefully avoiding the mirror. It was too early in the morning to go around scaring myself, I grinned. The poolside was green and calm and pretty. The water felt fresh and cool. The sun was already out and the air was warm. The only flea in the ointment was having to pass through that lobby. I just steeled myself and walked quickly, but I stumbled again in my panic and Gopal admonished me. Why are you always in such a hurry, Anjali? If you'd only go slowly and carefully, you wouldn't stumble. One day you're going to fall. The resort was a pleasant place, other than that one thing. We played caroms with our new friends and Chinese checkers. We read books and magazines. We had our morning swims. We watched movies. We went on what were politely called treks, but were really a drive, a relaxed amble in the fresh air, a picnic and a contented drive back, during which many of us nodded off in the coach. One day passed and two and three 
and my misery in the lobby abated not a whit. So on the fourth day, as Gopal dropped off to sleep in the afternoon, I told him I was going out, heard his grunted acknowledgement and escaped. I marched up to the front desk and told the young lady there authoritatively, I want to go up there, pointing to the blank wall covering the office. I'm sorry, ma'am, says she. Those are offices and guests are not permitted. I want to see the GM then, I said calmly. It took a bit of stubbornness on my part, but they finally gave in. The GM and two young women escorted me, all hovering and still trying to talk me out of it. I walked firmly towards some point in the lobby where there was only a wall and potted plants and said, completely dazed as to how I knew this, but now used to being dazed by all this strange stuff, there was a winding staircase here. My escorts were looking pale and terribly stressed. They redirected me towards another staircase and a kind of inevitability settled over me. I walked up to a spot and as had now become the norm, it was a blank wall. I pointed to it and said softly, There was a washroom here. I looked around me. The big picture window that should have been there, looking into the lobby, was now another wall. The tables and chairs and reading paraphernalia had disappeared. Everything was sterile and different, but the old images were imprinted clearly in my mind's eye. How did I know all this? I cannot tell you. I do not know. The GM was sweating profusely and looked like he was going to pass out. But he pushed up a chair for me and I collapsed heavily into it. And it came over me like a wave. And after fighting and resisting it all these days, I just sat there and let it wash over me. I scurried into the washroom. It was dark and dingy and damp and depressing. The mirrors were brown and clouded. I looked for a light switch but couldn't find one. Water drip, drip, dripped everywhere, but the floor was oddly dry. I pushed open the creaking loo door and was exasperated to see the latch was broken. There was no hook to hang my handbag on either and I had to push it back on my shoulder. To make matters worse, no matter how hard I tugged, my trousers refused to come off and I was getting panicky. Finally, I just gave up and left the loo. I tried to wash my hands, but there was no water in the rusty taps. Feeling utterly infuriated, I pulled open the door. And there were three strange women standing outside. One stepped up and embraced me. A total stranger. Yet, I felt an immeasurable comfort in her embrace. A great sadness and a deep compassion. I'm so sorry, my dear, she said kindly, pressing her warm hands into my back. I could feel their warmth through my shirt. But you are amongst friends. We've all been there, my dear. We understand your pain and we understand 
you. I can never hope to describe the liquid feeling of release I experienced. The letting go and the gush. I stood there in her embrace and then in those of the other two women in something that I had held hard inside me for years and years was right out there in front of us and was washed away by their loving eyes and gentle touch. I was released from an imprisonment I hadn't known I was serving. But now that it was gone, I could feel the massive difference. Long ago, when I was very young and newly married, and Gopal and I were trying to start a family, I had miscarried. The physical pain had been the most I'd ever experienced in my young life, but the emotional trauma, a hundred times that, a thousand times that, I don't know a number large enough to describe it. It had almost broken me. I'd taken ages to recover and been too scared to face conception again. My demons lived inside me and tormented me day and night. Finally, I had conceived and carried to term and my babies brought happiness back into my life. But they couldn't erase the old pain. The two lived side by side within me. I learned to live with the darkness. It was my most faithful bedfellow. Over the years, it hardened and calloused and formed itself into a dark black bezoar that I carried within me but never acknowledged. I lived and functioned in the light and happiness that my children brought into my life and then their children and while I stopped thinking about my darkness, I never forgot its existence either. Who could I share all this decades-old misery with? And the answer is, of course, nobody. In the embrace of those three women, that darkness was brought out and exposed to the full light of their compassion and empathy. And somehow, it softened and melted into something different. Something I could hold without pain, only with love. And something I could live with. I cannot explain any more than that. I discovered myself slumped in the chair. The GM still looked faint. The three women were gone. In front of me, only the solid wall. Water was offered and I drank it thirstily as if it could wash away the debris within me. It turned out I wasn't the first. There had been a few women before me. All ages, all vintages of experience. There had indeed been a washroom there, decades ago, part of the reading room facilities. Even walling it up had not reduced its power. It still drew its intended victims. No one knew who the three women were or what their sad stories were. There was no explanation for the strange episodes. But no one had ever complained. I could understand that. Those women had absolved me of a secret guilt I had carried for decades. Nothing had changed, but everything was changed. 
I asked that they help me back to the lobby and was relieved to find it no longer filled me with dread. I needed to catch Gopal before he came down. I had a lot of explaining to do. Explaining things that had no explanation. A fight was brewing in the room behind the front desk. First, it had been loudish murmurs, then an angry argument. And now, oh God, someone had clearly lost it. The front office clerk rolled his eyes and exhaled huffily. I'm sorry about this, ma'am. Some celebrities are temperamental. This one is just mental. I knew of only one celebrity who lived there. There's no way to overstate this. He's a god to me. His mastery over words, plot, story construction... His brilliance in pace and timing, his feather touch on language, mood, emotion. I'd die to write like that. So I hoped and prayed I'd run into him, breathe the same air, walk in the same rooms, exchange a few words with him if I should be so incredibly, unbelievably lucky. So I prompted the clerk shamelessly. Do you mean Dara, doctor? Is he in there? He saw the eager light burst out of me and wearily leaned on the counter with my key in his hands. Ma'am, better to admire from afar. Even now I advise you to leave. I'll have to charge you a day's room rate, but you'll keep your dreams intact. Go away, now, I beg you ma'am, take your bag, turn around and run. I stared at him, outraged. As the door behind him burst open, And Dara Doctor strode out, red-faced, disheveled and recognizable from his publicity stills only by his trademark Panama hat clutched in his fist. He barreled past me in a white fury, still yelling over his shoulder. If it doesn't bother me, why the bleeding hell should it bother you? I'm not moving and you better not touch a single thing in there as long as I'm alive or I'll crucify you and your dump of a hotel. Do your worst, you bloody, incompetent, illiterate, good-for-nothing toad. He disappeared into the lift and I turned back to catch the front desk man in hurried discussion with the manager. The older man approached me with an ingratiating smile. My regrets, madam, but geniuses will be geniuses. Mr. Doctor was upset and when he's upset, he lets us know it. Please join me in the downstairs bar for a complimentary drink. He indicated a stained glass door adorned with the simple sign, Downstairs. But drinks at 11am were a bit much and I demurred and hefted my backpack to my room on the second floor. The hotel was built around a courtyard 
and creepers fell over the balconies from level to level, trailing green and pink and white abundance. My room was 25. I had to pass 23. The whole world knew his was 43. I stood foolishly, gazing at that door for ages and scooted off to my own room still fluttering with delight. I unpacked and bathed, chose a summery dress and thin-soled sandals. It was lunchtime. The rooftop restaurant would be ideal, I thought. But first, I slipped up the stairs to the fourth floor. Stealthily, guiltily, I approached 43. I walked past, three or four times to be honest. But I couldn't hear his typewriter or his snoring, both of which I'd read much about. I was searingly disappointed. Eventually, I went on up to the restaurant. Stained glass door, helpfully labelled, upstairs. It opened onto a terrace, half canopied, half open to the cloudless blue sky. At the far end of the bamboo bar, slumped, Dara Doctor. Everything else immediately retreated into a haze. I fluttered, undecided, until a waiter suggested I take a seat at the bar. I clambered onto the high stool and looked up straight into the steady gaze of Dara Doctor himself. He raised his glass at me, and I didn't have a glass yet, so I just waved, trying to be casual. My tongue didn't loll out and unfurl across the countertop, so it can't have been too bad. The big man got off his stool, I noticed, while pretending I wasn't noticing, and almost had me falling off mine when he settled beside me. I saw you downstairs, he said. How long are you staying? Normally, that would be an inappropriate question. But this was Dara, doctor. So I spluttered out, Four nights. I leave on Tuesday. He introduced himself, as if I didn't know who he was, and I took the cue to give him my name. He asked if I was a fan, and I blushingly admitted I was. He asked me to name my favourite book and promised me a signed copy and I half died with delight. I confessed I was a struggling author myself, not published as yet. But I assured him I didn't have a manuscript for him. And he roared with laughter, throwing back his head and wavy hair. He vowed he liked me already. I have to admit, I liked him too. He was so charming, really listening and interested in what I said. Not at all smarmy, none of that Lothario stuff, though his reputation was rampant. Suddenly, he thumped the counter and apologized for keeping me talking and not taking me around the town. There wasn't much to see, a few churches, nice enough if not glorious. But the town was quaint and the beaches pristine. And that's how, for the next few days, Dara Doctor, adored across continents, became my personal tour guide. I couldn't believe this was my life. Yesterday, I'd been a nondescript drudge in a soulless city office. Today, 
I was sipping cocktails and exchanging trivialities on a sunny rooftop with Dara Doctor. I couldn't even have dreamt up something so wild. We went everywhere and saw everything, but often we just sat in cafes and people watched. Tourists came up and he obligingly autographed their books and endured their selfies. He was urbane and witty, but also astoundingly vulnerable, confessing his creative frustrations. To hear him speak, you'd never know he was a literary god. You'd think he was still struggling like me. That stunned me. I couldn't believe that world-famous authors had the same problems I had. It was disarming. I learned what the tantrum that first day had been about. It seemed the hotel was planning a revamp and he didn't want his room done. It was a running battle since the day the do-over had been mooted. He wasn't going to move out. Didn't want his room painted or the furniture changed. His room wasn't to be touched and that was it. Stubborn and immovable. My four days ran out quickly and the trip was almost over. The last night, in a corner under the stars on the rooftop, with only a faint breeze to shift the gloom of impending departure and the end of this amazing interlude, and perhaps under the effect of my small drink, I blurted out, How is it that you've adopted me like a stray and been so unfailingly good to me when I know you have the temper of a tyrant? He stared at me long and hard before replying. You're a struggling author, but you haven't shown me a written scrap and asked my opinion of it. In four days, you haven't requested a single autograph, photograph or selfie. You're a stray that deserves to be adopted. So now you tell me, why did you adopt me? I'm an old warhorse with a formidable temper, as you say. You're a young and pretty girl on a short holiday in a sun-drenched beach town. Why would you waste your precious time on me? I was gobsmacked by his humility. He must have seen it because he tossed his head and hair back in that boyish way he had and laughed and laughed and laughed until suddenly and without any indication, he put his head down on his hands and sobbed. It threw me. I didn't know what to do. Should I offer comfort? Was it a ploy? But the man was evidently wretched. And so, I waited, out of common human decency. I stayed motionless as he leaned back and looked off into the darkness. I can't leave that room, he muttered. I know it sounds crazy, but I cannot leave. That ridiculous room is the true font. The plumbing doesn't work, the air conditioning spews hot air, the bed sags, the windows don't shut, or if they do, they don't open, the carpet is threadbare, but it's the only place I can produce anything decent. They can mess me up as much as they like, but they can't mess with my work. That's my legacy. I have a name and a reputation and a madly loyal fan base. If staying in that room till it falls apart is the only way, then that's what I must do. 
His voice fell from the crescendo to a long silence, and we sat quietly, wrapped in the sultry night and our own thoughts. I knew he'd been drinking excessively that day, even by his own outrageous standards. But I wasn't his nanny. If he chose to kill himself with drink, then that would be his own call, not that of present member of loyal fan base. The words tumbled out through his thin lips and attacked me viciously. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I know you're crazy about my books and it's wrong to disillusion you. But the plain truth is, I don't write those books you admire so much. They're ghostwritten. I get the credit, the money and the adulation that comes with them, but no satisfaction because it's not my work. They're literally written by a ghost. Don't go. Please stay and listen. This as I pushed back my chair to leave. He was obviously too much the worse for drink to be in his senses. I'm not off my rocker. Have you read my early works? Hamfisted, huh? And then I landed in this godforsaken hole of a hotel and this mangy corner room and something changed. Nobody knows what, not even I. I just type up my text and leave it in the typewriter overnight. It doesn't work if I write elsewhere or if I use a computer or write by hand. My ghostwriter won't touch that output. But leave the last sheet in the manual typewriter overnight on the desk in 43. And by morning, it's transformed. I sat silent. What was there to say? I've tried to figure out who it is. The closest I can get is a lawyer, but no author. Folks say they hear my typewriter clacking all hours of the night while I'm fast asleep or wide awake and watchful, but nothing's going on inside the room that I can see or hear. It sounds crazy, but I've concluded it's a ghost who wants to write and is using me. So I must protect him, however mad that sounds. That's why I'm not letting them in. Over my dead body, I've said. I've been on this escapade with you, but tomorrow I'm back at my desk and soon the current book will be done. Let's see how much longer I can hold them off. Maybe I can squeeze out another book. That's the impossible truth. And now I've got it off my chest. You can go, girl. I know you'll never repeat it. Who'd believe such a mad story? Go, leave. I got up and left as directed. Next morning, I had a solitary breakfast. I checked out at the front desk where I was given a brown paper parcel from Mr. Doctor, I was informed. I thrust it into my bag, requesting them to pass on my thanks. It turned out to be the books he'd promised. In thanks for your kindness, your generosity of spirit and the joy in your shining youth which you shared with me for a few days. I noticed it was handwritten, not typed. That was two years ago. His book was published and ripped the charts like a tornado. But the next one, his last, bombed. And the critics banned it mercilessly. It started out strong, they said but petered out in a most unlikely fashion. 
I didn't have the heart to read it. His obituary was in the papers a week later, and I wept for him. I remember his anguish, how the words were wrung out of him, how he couldn't face me and hid himself away, seeking refuge in work that brought him no joy. I remember his happy spirit, his roaring laugh, his funny stories, his shrewd observations, and his wretched despair. I remember them all. And then last week, as I sat struggling to convey my thoughts effectively into words, a message popped up on my computer. The ramshackle old hotel had been restored, and there was to be a grand reopening. And former guests were invited back with an inaugural discount. So I'm here now, lugging my belongings along the corridors, still dappled in the light filtering through the pink and white creepers. Pictures of Dara Doctor hang everywhere, in the lobby, in the corridors, and naturally here in his very own sanctum. Under his watchful eye, I place my new manual typewriter ceremoniously on the writing desk. I still have to get used to it. I feed in a fresh sheet of paper even before I unpack. Let's see if 43 can work its magic for me.